Blog Talk Radio. Don't mind if you got something nice to say about me. I enjoy an accolade like the rest. And you could take my picture and hang it in. Good morning and welcome to Solutions Live Personal Edition. I'm your host, Chickie Fitzgerald, coming to you from Tampa, Florida. Solutions provides practical advice from authors and experts on a wide range of topics for professionals to help you leave your legacy. Thursday lineup begins with Real Life Renovations with my co-hosts Phil and Amy Parham. At 10.30, Financial Health. 11 a.m., Giving and Faith in the Marketplace. And at 11.30, Intellectual Gumbo, where I'll do a review of the week with my co-host Chris Bradshaw. Stick around for that and add some spice to your day. Well, it is Thursday, April 16th, and uh, we have a great lineup this morning, a a little bit different twist uh, in in our later shows, but our first show, we are going to have uh, our regular real-life renovations stories, and we're going to start with uh, Jen, and uh, I will let Phil and Amy introduce her in a minute, but at 10.30, we are going to be talking to Don Russell, who's an investment expert. And uh, he's got some interesting uh, perspectives on the credit crisis and uh, what actually caused everything to go wrong. And I I think it uh, gives us a lot of really good lessons, uh, especially those of us who are in business for ourselves. And then at 11 o'clock, we're going to be talking to Ron Weaver, who is a business leader here in the Tampa area and just one of the most incredible people uh, that I have ever met. This man never forgets a name, uh, never forgets a detail. If you tell him about your dog, uh, you know, five months later he's going to ask you how your dog's doing uh, by name. Uh, And then, of course, at 1130, uh, Chris and I will do our wrap-up. So let's just jump right in. Good morning, Phil and Amy. How are you guys doing? Good morning, Chickie. We're doing well. We just had a hard workout so we were panting a little bit at three <laughs> Doing good well good morning. for you i wish i could say the same i need some coaching this morning but uh, before we get to uh, talk about that let's have you introduce our guest this morning well jen is a really good friend she's part of our biggest loser family she actually um was a contestant on season five, uh, five of the show which is a season prior right prior to ours and um, she was on the purple team, and she really provided a lot of coaching and help for us when we were in the, in the process. She's always positive and always a big cheerleader, and so we wanted to um, have her on the program today and, and get her insight on the whole experience of um, weight loss and what she's learned, because she's actually um, helping kids, you know, coaching kids with, um, you know, um, weight loss and helping Oh, I know. Them. That fascinated me, actually. Uh, and, and, Jen, I would love to hear your, your kind of childhood story because you, I, I read a bit about it on your website last night. Why don't we just start there of, of how you got involved with the camp, and then we'll kind of circle back to uh, your experience on Biggest Loser. Okay. Um, good morning, everybody. And basically, uh, from the time that I was 13 until last year, I was with a summer camp called Camp Shane, which is a weight loss and fitness camp for kids ages 6 all the way up to 18, and now actually the camp has branched out and they have an adult program. Um, I'm actually no longer with Camp Shane, um, but I I only have good things to say about it. It actually um, it really works for people who are not looking for a, a one-time quick fix. You know, when I was – it's hard when you're younger, and every summer I would go to camp and I would lose 20, 25 pounds, and then I would come home and I would gain 
30, it's hard when you're a kid because a lot of it falls on as on the adults, on the parents, to make sure that, yes, they're making my lunch, that, no, I'm not buying food at school. And, you know, when, when you don't have those checks and balances, it's very easy to get back into your old habits. Um, last summer when I had returned to camp, I had wanted only good things for the campers. I wanted to provide them with um, tools and things that they could utilize when they go home to help them continue down their, their path of always being a success. And um, after last summer, I actually decided that I wanted to, to go a different route and follow, follow my dream, which is being an event planner um, full-time. So now I'm with the American Cancer Society, so kind of oh, sort of down the, the same path. I'm helping people in a different way. And I do have a kids program where I do um, train children twice a week. So still in that mindset a little bit, but just different. And, um, I mean, Camp Shane is ultimately what was, I think, my selling point for getting on to The Biggest Loser. I think that they liked that I had had, had some experience being fit and then as a failure. So that was that's how I took it. Um, I could be wrong, but yeah. <laughs> so what got you to the place where you actually went to the casting call? Um, what got me there? Well, we had a weekend where I brought in reality show celebrities from MTV, and I brought in one person who on um, MTV is known as the not-so-nice person. And uh, one day she, she said to me, she's like, you know, you have such a beautiful face, but you're really overweight. And I said, oh, my God, you really are the not-so-nice person that you're portrayed as. <laughs> and... Um, she said, I, listen, I know some people in the casting for a, a weight loss show. Would you be interested in maybe auditioning for The Biggest Loser? And I was like, oh, my God, we bring them here every summer, of course. Like, why would they want me? But sure, no problem. She's like, you're going to need a partner. And um, just as I was talking to her, Maggie, who is my partner on the show, she walked out of the cafeteria at camp, and I said, Maggie, so what are you doing on August? And I forgot the date. And um, she's like, I, I don't know. I'm going to be here. And I said, okay, we're going to Manhattan. We're going to audition for The Biggest Loser. And Maggie had never seen the show, knew nothing about it. So she was like, okay. And then um, once we made it, she was like, oh, my God, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> not so fun as it might appear yeah. on TV. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Can you tell people how hard it is compared to what they see on TV, or is it as hard, you know? Can you talk about what your experience was like? Oh, my gosh. I think I it's all like a black fog, to be honest. It is <laughs> grueling. Um it's, it is so incredibly intense. It's not just the two hours that you see on Tuesday nights. It's six, seven, eight hours a day, every day, and with a break one of those days. And it's, it's really tough, really, really tough. Do you feel like your life really changed? Like, would you be doing what – let's just take the weight loss aside. I mean, I think this is interesting. Would you be doing – do you think that the show gave you that – extra um, push to do what you're doing now because obviously you, you said, you know, event planning and working mm -hmm. with kids and things like that is your passion. Um, I think, you think the show – oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think you got where I was going with the question. I think that the show pushes everybody very differently. I think that it makes you realize that there are doors that can be opened that you never thought could be opened. I think yeah. that um, – it not only changes you physically, obviously, but it really, really, really changes you mentally and emotionally. I mean, there are things that after my elimination, I remember coming home and just having conversations with my parents was so different. I felt like I was just a different person. Um, and I think that 
when people are really overweight, it something clicks in their head that says, I don't deserve this, or I this shouldn't right. be me, or I can't do this. And then when, when, when you're thinner, all of a sudden, okay, now it clicks the other way that, yes, you do deserve it. And I think that there's one thing that I've learned is that whether you're 400 pounds or 200 pounds or 150 pounds, you do deserve it. So you should never let one day pass you up and, and say, no, today I don't deserve it. Maybe tomorrow I'll try. You know, every day yeah, you should try. Communicate? How can we communicate that to those people out there who will never be on a reality show, who will never, you know, have the opportunity that we've had? I mean, because I know that for me, I realized when I was there, you know, I could have done this at home. I mm-hmm. could have I could have made this, you know, happen at, at home, but it just never, I never realized it. You know, how can we make people realize that they can make this change in their lives? Well, and I think that you guys probably know the answer to this, is that Bob and Jillian were not with us those six, eight hours a day. They were with us probably two hours a day. So the other four and five hours, we were by ourselves doing cardio. We were by ourselves doing all the work. They didn't cook our food for us. We cooked our food. So all these things that people think that in their mind that we have it so set at the ranch, yes, we are removed from our environments, and we are provided with world-class trainers. But you can do it at home because you are the ultimate one that's going to be providing your food. Nobody forced you to get out of the bed in the morning to go to the gym. I mean, if you didn't, Jillian was probably going to kill you. But, I mean, (laughs) you had to make that ultimate decision, and and in the end, that's what it is. Yeah, and realizing, I I feel like, too, realizing you're strong, like what Mm -hmm. you were saying earlier, because, you know, everybody needs to know that, that they have the power within them, that they have the strength within them, you know. So. Yep. Do you feel like it's been a positive for you, Jen, to do this in front of America? I mean, do you think that adds a layer of, even a layer of accountability that, mm-hmm. you know, you can't hide anymore in a way? A hundred percent. I mean, if there's something that can that will make somebody feel accountable, put on a sports bra, put on a pair of spandex, get on a scale in front of a family member because it's the exact same thing. I didn't know the millions of people who watched me every week, so when people would make comments on the blogs or, or wherever and they would say things, I, I was the only one that I cared about in that moment. However, for me, it took me getting up in front of the world in a sports bra and spandex for me to be like, what, what are you doing? You know, just do it already. But you know what, and I'm sure like you guys, I struggle every single day. Every day I have to wake up and I have to make a choice. Am I going to work out today? Am I going to eat right today? And that was it all the time, even at the ranch. Am I going to work my hardest today? Am I going to eat right today? What am I going to eat today? And those are the constant struggles that we have every single day, just like anybody else struggling with their weight. So, Jen, how did you break the cycle that you Mm -hmm. had been in your whole childhood of, of getting focused and doing it when you were at camp? Right. And, you know, and then coming back, and it sounds like you actually gained more each year than you lost. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah. you know, each year you were falling behind, which mm-hmm. is, is a very, very common malady of people who, you know, do fad diets <laughs> or, you know, who get very serious. And, I mean, I look at my own life and, and see that in spades, and I'm not going to take up our time talking about that. But, um, you know, how did you break that cycle? I think that that there was a lot of emotional underlying factors as to why I had a weight problem. And when I finally was able to take a look at myself and realize what those underlying factors were and actually kind of surrender to the fact that maybe I needed to talk to somebody about it, it it kind of just like, it was like a mental weight loss almost. Like I kind of felt myself getting lighter and lighter and lighter and it helps. Like there are so many people out there because I meet you on a daily basis who come to me and they'll say, 
you know what, my husband calls me fat and all it wants, makes me do is I, is I want to eat more. Or my mother tells me that I'm never going to aspire to anything, so all I want to do is eat. Things like that, people don't realize those really sting. They really hurt and really affect you. And when you can come to terms with and either approach that person in the face or go and talk to somebody about it, you're always going to have that problem. So for me it was a matter of I had to go and see somebody and I had to talk to somebody and it it helps. It really does help. So did you have to go – you feel like you couldn't get to that point where you went to talk to somebody until mm-hmm. the weight started to come off because we tell people just do these things first and as you start doing them – you don't have to have emotion involved in that because you want to lose the weight. But as mm-hmm. you start doing those things, we know I noticed that the emotional part didn't hit me till like eight weeks in. Right. And then I started. Do you understand what I'm saying? Did it happen for you that way? Because you just went in there and you were thrown into that circumstance where you had to right. start losing weight, and then the emotional part kind of comes later, doesn't it? Well, I specifically remember um, it was our first day training with Bob and Jillian, and I heard Bob yell to Kelly who um, was on the yellow team with her ex-husband, biggest woman in the house, how does that make you feel? And it, very degrading, and it, I like almost got stopped dead in my tracks because everything that I had ever heard over the course of my life about being fat and being overweight and never being anything in, in life because of my weight came back at me, and I, I remember I started to cry, and thankfully the cameras are not around, but Jillian was like, what, what happened? And I... I said to her, I was like, I won't function like this. This cannot happen. And I explained to her what my situation was, and she said, oh, my God. She goes, you already took a step towards towards changing because you've already acknowledged the fact that this is why you are like this. And um, she said, you will always have to speak with somebody because for if somebody were to come back at me and say something negative, it again, it will coil back into, oh, my God, I have an emotional eating problem. So... For Jillian to kind of talk to me that first day and make me realize, hey, you know, you do have an emotional problem. You do need to take care of it, just like all of us did. Um, I don't think that I would be where I was today had I not recognized it. Yeah. Well, Jen, that's yeah. a very, very powerful story, and I know you have a meeting you have to run to, and yeah. it has been really great uh, for you to step up and, and share that with us. And uh, I just uh, want to thank you personally. Oh, no, thank you, guys. Have a good rest of the show. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming on. Well, guys, I I would like to hear a little bit more from from you because I remember both of you telling me that you were pretty happy with yourselves. You know, I mean, you you didn't. Go ahead. I I really feel like we kind of were the – um, jolly fat couple, you know, like we were the life of the party kind of couple. Like everywhere we right. went, people wanted to hang around us because we were always so, like, positive and happy and tried to, you know, put on the happy face. But I, I think guess, denial I, would be a good word. Yeah, denial is a better <laughs> word. But, I mean, I mean, really, it's like you overcompensate for the way, you know, you look physically with your personality. Because we actually, it's funny because since we've lost the weight, I think we have become a little bit more lower key. <laughs> I, I know. I I would go to a party and I would be the life of the party and they would always want, you know, is Phil coming tonight? You know, because I would be the biggest thing there and I would have to have the biggest personality because right. what I felt like I, I was intimidated about other, you know, beautiful people in my mind. 
And so what I had to do is I didn't want to not go to the party because I love people. I love being in that I love being in that that party space, you know, I enjoy that. But I, I had to over over exaggerate things with my personality so I would become known for something other than the way I looked, which I was trying to always push everybody's eyes and and focus off of my weight that I obviously couldn't get under control. Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, it is. And Amy, what about you? Because I, I had made a comment, I don't even know if you were on the show that day, that it was interesting looking back at all of the pictures because all the pictures of Phil were were, were full body pictures. And mm-hmm. the pictures of you, you were always like leaning your head in. And I mean, you were so beautiful <laughs> anyway, but you somehow managed to crop your, your body out of most of the photos of you, at least those that ended up uh, on your website or, or on the uh, the Biggest Loser website. Unless oh, they made you do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had I was forced to do the sports bra thing, but otherwise I always, yeah, because, you know, people always tell you, oh, you've got such a beautiful face. And so you go, okay, well, let's go with that. You know, <laughs> we'll go with the face. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, yeah, I mean, I never, we'd take family pictures. I'd get behind my sister's or, you know, we'd take pictures with Philip and I and I always lean over his shoulder or whatever. And, um always hiding you know always hiding my body because that was an that was failure that was shame you know that was shameful that was an area that I um had failed in and I you know didn't want to be a failure and I knew I was successful in so many other areas that um admitting that to myself I guess that I had failed in that area if I just didn't take pictures of it it didn't exist <laughs> yeah you so. know it's really interesting and and I want to give uh Chris uh my my co-host Chris a chance to chime in on the conversation here too but I I noticed this morning I got a uh an email from someone in fact Phil I sent it on to you cuz I think it's a great idea for you guys uh but uh somebody who I had as a guest on a few weeks ago um sends out every day a, a daily 1 minute uh you know kind of uh, pep talk. And I, as I clicked on it, and he does this beautiful job of standing in front of his library. And so he's got all these yeah. great books behind him. And, and he's got his book on the shelf, you know, positioned in a subtle way, you know, so that he's promoting his book. But, you know, he does such an effective job of, of uh, you know, just coaching the people who are listening to it and, you know, just leaving you inspired. I thought, oh, man, I want to do that. And then I thought, oh, no, can't do that until I lose weight. And, you know, I mean, that was my wake-up call. I mean, not that I don't get wake-up calls every week when we talk about this. But, you know, I've got to have something that says I could make so much more money if I just got on it and did it. So I want to turn it over to Chris because Chris has been in this unique place where, uh, at least up until this week, uh, she's been kind of on sabbatical and in between jobs and able to get back to working out with her trainer. So, Chris, what's going on with you on this front? Oh, man. <laughs> I know I'm putting you on the spot, babe, but <laughs> but it's real life that helps us renovate ourselves, right? That's the exactly. whole point of real life renovations. you got to be able to, to fess up before you can uh, slim down, I guess. Well, I think I have the perfect environment now to move forward, and I have, you know, worked out with the trainer, but it doesn't matter if you have nothing else to do. There's still an available excuse. Yes, that's right. You know, this excuse right. does change from, okay, I don't have time because I have a job and then my husband, or now 
I don't have time because, oh, I better get these emails out first thing in the morning so that I, you know, do this or, oh, I'm so happy. I'm going to take this excuse to sleep in because I never get to sleep in when I'm working or, um, let's see, what else? <laughs> we, we had a professor that always used to say, <clears throat> that's just an excuse. It doesn't matter if your dog ate it or something else. That's an excuse. And he would say, an excuse is the skin of a reason wrapped with a lie. And we've never forgotten that, you know. It's the skin of a reason wrapped with a lie. Mm. So we tell ourselves all kinds of things in all kinds of areas. And, and I think it's really interesting to know that as you start getting one area in, in your life under control a little bit, it opens the door up and you start looking at other areas in your life and you said, man, you know, I, I, I could be a little bit better in that area. You know, I could be a little bit more on purpose or I could be, you know, a little bit more in control in my finances or my family or, you know, how am I living. It starts, it's really neat. That's, I think that's what's kind of happened to us. And I think that to go back to what Jen was saying earlier, we all, you know, she wouldn't be working for the American Cancer Society and fulfilling her dreams, you know, if she hadn't have made a step towards doing something to change her life and start getting that area under control and don't think you would realize how broken you are and how much you have issues and then start dealing with them. I think it's it's great when we all acknowledge that we're all messed up <laughs> and then we then we all just start making changes to fix it because yeah. we all are everybody is screwed up. Exactly, we all Everybody are messed is. up just in our own unique way, right? So Everybody's <laughs> got issues. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I do want to share this, though. I do want to share that, um, you know, even if I can't, I, well, even if I have not yet gotten to the point where it's a habit or I'll get myself out of bed because getting out of bed has always been a challenge for me, it doesn't matter, um, it is the case already, though, that I really have gotten to the point where after a certain period of time, I miss working out. And I will Absolutely. go out of my way at then to, once it gets to whatever date that is, and now I'm trying to figure out how long it is before my body says, oh, you must go work out, and I really look forward to it. So now it is the case that, you know, this past um, Saturday I was out of town, but I got my girlfriend to go to the gym at the hotel. And then the, the Saturday before that, you know, my husband and I were up in the morning, and I said, you know, I really want to go work out. And he's like, go for it. I'm not coming with you. And I'm like, fine, I'll be back in an hour, you know. So, yeah. it, so I really do miss it now. And so I think the, the combination of that plus, you know, wanting to do it will finally maybe create more of a habit. And, and that's what I'm looking for is now the next stage of consistency in a sense, right? Right. That's that's something that I've realized is that consistency, you know, you like before I would get so fired up for like a time and then I'd fall off and then I'd see no results, you know, but if you just do a little bit every day, every day eventually you'll definitely see the results, you know. Well, and that's it's important interesting. for people to realize. You know, Chris, I mean, you talk about the formation of a habit, and I think that they say it's 21 days, and you can tell by moving your uh, garbage can from one side of your desk to the other. And how many days you throw the trash on the floor is is uh, <laughs> the time that it takes to actually instill a habit uh, just in, in your brain. Because it, it, it is 
a brain thing. It's not not a physical thing. Uh, but you're right. Your your body does get excited about it. And I remember when uh, when Michael and I were doing Body for Life. Um, gosh, it must have been uh, in 2001 that we did it really, really successfully, uh, where we kept it up for a very long time. And and because it wasn't a diet, uh, you know, and, and a quick weight loss program, it was a you know kind of steady eddy kind of thing. We really stuck with it. And when I went to when I traveled, you know, which at that time I was traveling constantly. Uh, and in fact, that's when we were doing LasVegas.com, Chris. And and um, you know, I always went and worked out. And and it wasn't a hardship at all because it had become a habit, and mm-hmm. I did miss it, uh, particularly because I had incorporated weightlifting, and you know for anybody, uh, particularly women who have taken up uh, any kind of, of weightlifting or bodybuilding, um, you know I mean you do have to keep it up because, uh, you know trying to do the the weightlifting after you've gone you know three or four days or a week without it, um, you know you you really have to fall back to lower weights. And uh, it hit me once. I was on, on a trip to South America, and I was in Chile and went down to work out, and I hadn't worked out for a week. And, you know, I set the weights and, and then later realized that it was in kilograms and not, not pounds. So I was actually thinking I couldn't do it because I was oh. <laughs> twice, almost twice the, the amount of weight. So That's funny. But, you know, I, I want to tell you a, a funny story. I, it It dawned on me one day that everyone has trouble with this. And everyone has to do it, and it's just something that you have to build into your lifestyle. I was in a in a gym in Los Angeles, working out with Jillian Michaels, my trainer, who's one of the most, you know, I guess she's one of the most uh, famous trainers now in the country. And in our second class at Barry's boot camp, um, she turned around and she said, "I think this lady's going to kill us." She's like, "This is, you know," she was. She was having a hard time with the class, and I thought, wow, I'm having a hard time with this. I'm like 100 pounds overweight still at this point, and I'm doing it. And even though I may have to go outside and, you know, get sick, I'm still <laughs> going to finish it. I'm, You know, I'm going to do my best to finish it, but I'm having a hard time. Jillian's having a hard time. So I don't know why I had that disconnect in my head. I, I think I thought that somehow that some people don't have a hard time with that or and then and then I saw that she was having a hard time and when we work out sometimes with athletes they're having a tough time and they and I just realized that they know how to just push through it and they've built right. that into their lifestyle that they know every day they have to do every day they have to go work out you know or every day they have to walk or every day they have to run and a lot of days you're not going to feel like it. You just know that just like putting on your pants, just like right. drinking water, you know, eating food, you're just going to have to do something to stay in shape. And it's well, just that's what I loved about what what Jen said uh, in her introduction. Yeah. Really, is that you know every day she gets out of bed and realizes that she has the choice, you know, to work out or not, to eat the right things or not, and right. and to have that positive mental attitude and. Uh, you know, Amy, I'd, I'd just like to have you weigh in, in in the last minute or so that we have. Um, you know, what gives you that strength uh, to break through that really tough time that, that Phil is talking about? Well, I mean, I I really have made it a habit, but also, like, I try to, to put goals in front of me all the time that I'm meeting because I like to have that little bit of competition. And we all have goals in our lives that, you know, maybe we want to, 
look good for the summer, or maybe we want to, um, you know, compete in a race, or maybe we want, you know, there's always some kind of goal we can set up for ourselves to try to reach. And, like, for example, I ran a um, 5K last weekend, and I wanted to beat my time. So I beat my time by four minutes. So that was one of my little goals. Well, now I'm going to California in May, and um, I want to, you know, lose a few pounds just to be look really, really good because I'm going to see Bob and, you know, I want to look good for my trainer and all that kind of thing. And so I always have little goals in front of me that I'm trying to meet, and I think that helps me to stay motivated because, um, you know, if we don't have a goal or a you know vision in front of us to work for, then it's sometimes easy to just say, oh, I'll take today off, oh, I'll, you know. Right. And then also knowing that if I take a day off that um, – you know, I, it'll be harder the next time. So I always know, okay, you better do it now or it's going to be harder yeah. if you, you know, slack off for a couple of days. So that's the way I, I try to treat it. Well, absolutely. And I think that that's all just uh, really great advice. And, and the whole thing about having a goal in mind reminds me that we do need to also thank our sponsor for today's show and that is the Barbados Tourism Authority. And uh, for those of you who are thinking about your summer vacation or maybe a getaway in the fall, uh, if you haven't been to Barbados, it is one of the most spectacular islands. Uh, the individuals who vacation there are, are uh, very international, so if you enjoy meeting people from other countries, it's really a terrific place to go. And, of course, if you do look at yourself in the mirror or if you get up the courage, as Jen said, to uh, you know put on a, a uh, spandex outfit in front of somebody that you love and you don't like what you see in the mirror, then uh, please continue to tune in on Thursdays. And, uh, Phil, would you just give folks the way to get in touch uh, with you and Amy? Sure. They can always get in touch with us through our website, philandamyfitness.com. And I think it's just uh, info at philandamyfitness.com if somebody wants to get a hold of us for an event or just find out more about what we're doing. Okay, well, terrific. Well, next week we want to hear about your uh, your event this weekend where you're wrapping up uh, one of your 90-day fitness challenges. Absolutely. And we are going to be gearing up for our 90-day fitness challenge We're on the air. Getting ready for it, absolutely. Well, you guys have a great weekend, and uh, I will be talking to you in, in the middle of the week uh, talking about how to get our challenge started. Great. All right, so, thank you, all right guys. All right. Thanks so much. Bye, Chris. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, now shifting gears uh, entirely to uh, the state of the financial health of our country and, and what brought that all about. And this show is sponsored by The Solutions Group, and you can check out the services offered by The Solutions Group at www.solutionswithaz.com. And let me get our next guest on the air. Good morning, Don. Hello? Oh, I'm sorry. That was Phil and Amy. Hang on. Get it. Oh, hang on. <laughs> sorry, I clicked on the the wrong caller. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Chickie. How are you? I'm doing great. And uh, for those of you who are listening, this is Don Russell. He is, uh, well, I'll let him give you his background, but I certainly consider him an investment expert from all different perspectives. Uh, have been uh, had the good fortune to have him as an investor in one of my ventures, and uh, have enjoyed his support uh, during the good times and the bad times. 
Uh, Don, why don't you give us a, a snapshot of your background, and then let's just jump right into this whole subject of the five five C's of uh, smart lending. Great. Yeah, my background uh, is that I uh, went to school, was an economics major, uh, became a commercial lending officer on Wall Street out of school with NatWest, and then became an investment banker doing both mergers and acquisitions as well as corporate finance, the raising of debt and equity for businesses, predominantly in media businesses. Uh, in addition to that, uh, became a merchant banker, investing my own capital and that of my partners in various businesses and ultimately into private equity, uh, using other people's money to invest in these businesses alongside ours. And um, so I've pretty much done the uh, a pretty broad brush across the financial sector. Yeah, that, that is the entire gamut, uh, but also rounded out by a couple of uh, smaller ventures. Uh, so you've you've had your uh, your startup experience as well. So you know this is why I, I uh, consider you one of the most foremost uh, uh, investment experts uh, that I know because I know a lot of folks who who have just stuck with the Wall Street side of it and haven't ventured out. Uh, uh, as you have in both taking risk, assessing risk. And, you know, it's funny, Don, when, when you and I started talking about this whole notion of the five C's uh, uh, of financial health, I was reminded uh, of a dialogue that you and I had uh, over two years ago. In fact, maybe it was exactly two years ago. We were in Connecticut uh, going out to talk to different uh, investors in the business that you and I both have a stake in. And I asked you over breakfast, I think we were at a Marriott, and I, I said, Don, can you help me understand what subprime means? Because that was the first time that that term had broken into the popular press and into the media, and we all started hearing about it. But I was really fascinated yesterday when you were telling me that this actually all goes back even Further and, and certainly into the late 70s and early 80s and, and you know, kind of culminated uh, in, in the 90s and then uh, again in the early 2000s. So why don't you give us just a brief snapshot of that. And by the way, Don, I think you heard uh, uh, in being on the call a little bit early, my co-host today is Chris Bradshaw, who you know well. Hello, Chris. Hi, good morning. It's so good morning. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. Yeah, and Don, if you can just give us that little, you know, uh, three to five minute snapshot of kind of the history of what brought us to that day uh, two years ago when when the subprime uh, crisis uh, really uh, dominated the news. Yeah, I, I will just briefly mention uh, back in the early 70s when the rules of the game in finance between savings banks and commercial banks were changed. At that point in time, the government actually regulated what could be paid on a savings account, and savings banks were allowed to pay five and a quarter percent, and commercial banks could only pay five percent, and so we all kept our money in savings accounts, and um, the savings industry was the industry that provided all, virtually all of the home loans that were financed through the 60s and 70s and and so forth. And the government, in its uh, desire to promote competition and do all of that, basically lifted the limits that one could pay 
and totally changed and frankly caused the savings and loan crises of the early 70 early and mid 70s uh by having done that because all of a sudden you took an industry uh and that was lending 30 year money at fixed rates and took what had been a very steady source of money people's savings accounts uh and they made a one or two point spread on that but when they lifted those limits and yet the asset the loan the bank had stayed at a fixed rate they caused great calamities because for the first time people were paying more and more for money and the banks ended up with a negative spread and that's what led to so many bank failures and you had this law of unintended consequences that oftentimes our government finds itself in uh later on you had some other good things that the government was interested in doing one was increasing home ownership amongst people uh and particularly amongst lower income and minority people and so they started looking at all the major lenders and actually started fining them if they were not lending in areas uh that were in and near their branches and so forth where they were um servicing people with checking accounts and savings accounts and people like right. that and so they started to uh fine the banks for not making loans in those areas and that's actually what was the initial part of starting to create this whole subprime industry. Yeah, you know, that that really fascinated me because I, you know, I I was I, I guess blissfully ignorant during those days of what was going on because I I was gainfully employed and had a regular paycheck coming in and had been a homeowner for a while so didn't need to borrow money. Um and, and, you know, I think a lot of people are in that same place where they just don't understand that historical perspective. So so what happened next, Don? So uh, basically um, there were some congressmen, Barney Frank amongst them, who decided that home ownership should be lifted from what was then a 66% rate of home ownership amongst the population to 68%. And you say 2%, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but... In many cases, the reason those people were not already owning a home was uh, that they did not meet one or more of the criteria necessary to make a good and prudent loan. And so it might be helpful, you've referred to the five C's, but it might be helpful to talk about them a little bit. Oh, absolutely. We need to dive uh, directly into that because I think that that is central to uh, you know, the reasoning behind the crisis. And as I had mentioned to you yesterday, you know, as I thought about uh, our our own business that you and I uh, jointly own and, and how people look at loaning money to us, I think that these things are really important for entrepreneurs to get a hold of in, in realizing the place that they have to be in order for someone to loan them money in a healthy way that's going to produce uh, income and, and revenue and be good for the economy. So why don't we just dive into the first one, Don? Sure. Um, well, first, let me just mention them all. They are okay. capacity, collateral, capital, the conditions, and character. And so first, typically one would look at the capacity of a borrower. And so the capacity of a borrower when it comes to a home loan would be what income are they generating and what is their ability to actually repay 
that loan. And um, when you look at a business, what is the profitability of the business? What is the operating cash flow of the business? Uh, how, in fact, are they able to um, go ahead and repay the money which is borrowed? And it's interesting when you look at the home crisis uh, and you say, how did we get where we are? Uh, what did what became almost a norm in the industry was what was called a no income verification loan. Oh. And think think about that as I don't care what your capacity to repay is, I won't even bother checking on it. And right, that's amazing. That cer- certainly is not what gets done it, with commercial lending with companies where they scrutinize very closely what is the history of the business, what is the history of its profitability, have you paid your bills on time, what are the debt levels that you're seeking, what are the typical debt levels in for your industry, in your business, uh, and a whole myriad of financial ratios as it might pertain to a uh, to a business, um, you know, such as a debt to equity ratio or a, a debt coverage ratio or a current ratio of current assets to current liabilities. All of those things are very appropriate. And even in the loans, going back to the mortgage loan. Um, if you recall from years ago, it used to be that the lender would tell you, uh, you really probably shouldn't have more than 25 to 30 percent right. of your gross income go towards debt service type payments, meaning the principal, the interest, and the taxes, frankly, uh, on the house. That was relaxed substantially and got up, frankly, well, up to 40% and in some cases even 50% for the more aggressive lenders, which is just, frankly, uh, way too high a level for a person to then be able to not only afford that house but afford to live. So how does that play into the next one of the Cs? Well, the... um, in order for a lender to protect themselves, uh, they not only want to look at your capacity to repay, but they probably want some form of collateral for the loan. And collateral certainly is a secondary source of repayment. No lender, uh, well, let's say very few lenders make a loan with an eye towards collecting on the collateral. In fact, um, <laughs> although that's precisely what's uh, been the result. So the unintended consequence of the first C was that they are ending up with that collateral right smack dab in the middle of their asset pool, and now they don't know what to do with it all. Right. Well, and and it's true, and it and it's very interesting. You know, when you look at a business, uh, you probably are talking about securing it maybe with the real estate of the business if they own some, the office equipment, the manufacturing equipment, maybe the receivables or inventory of the company. It's it's very hard, frankly, for service businesses and some small companies because they often don't have a lot of hard assets that would be considered good collateral 
for a lender. And that's why many times you'll see in, in small businesses that they require personal guarantees. Right. They, want, they want the uh, principles of the business really invested in the business, not only with the money they put in, uh, but with um, having substantial risk if they're going to be lending to that business. In the mortgage side of the equation, uh, it's very interesting you know, back uh, at the tech bubble, which was year 2000, 2001, after that, really, if you looked at the world, uh, all consumer spending around the world had declined substantially at that point also. And one of the decisions that was made uh, by Greenspan at the time was to provide a lot of liquidity for the marketplace and to lower interest rates. And in doing so, uh, he promoted an incredible rise in refinancings and in new home purchases and in uh, a, the rise of the price of real estate. And why am I talking about that vis-a-vis -vis collateral? Because Yeah, it actually the, sounds like it spills over into conditions as well. Well, it does, but at the same time, what it did from a collateral perspective is when one gets an appraisal on their home, the standard appraisal that's used, while there are many approaches for coming up with an appraisal value, uh, which would include replacement cost, which would include uh, a discounted cash flow uh, on a business, um, the primary one used for homes is a like sale. or um, so you would look at a comparable home in a given area and what, in fact, are they selling for. And what uh, people started to believe in was that uh, because a number of years went by with continuous 10, 15, 20% rising of right. home values, is that, in fact, homes were going to continue to rise in value. And so what did you uh, have? But you had government programs, uh either with Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, or FHA, with very low, if any, down payments. Right. So rather than the traditional 20% down payment that we're all relatively used to, um, all of a sudden people were buying homes with five, three, or even no down payment. And so, uh, and it was on the premise that the collateral was going to grow in value and there would always be a margin for the lender between the value, even though the person hadn't put up a down payment. Right, and, and that, I do that, remember particularly here in Tampa watching those real estate uh, prices rise all around us, and there was a lot of movement in neighborhoods uh, such as the one that I live in. And, you know, our house had doubled in value, and, oh, we were excited. And we could just see that next threshold that would push us over that, that million-dollar mark. And, uh, you know, just already thinking about spending the money that you would make when you sold the house and then, you know, found something else. So, And, and what many people did in that situation, Chicky, is they looked and they said, gee, you know, take an example, I... I spent $300,000 for my house, I borrowed, let's say they were prudent, they borrowed only 200000 two-thirds. Uh, but now it's worth 600000 And in many cases, they went out and they could borrow uh, 
$200,000 against that house or $450,000 against that house. And their payments were not substantially, they were certainly somewhat higher, but because interest rates were so much lower, their monthly payments weren't all that much bigger. Right, or maybe even the same. Or maybe even the same, depending on exactly how much they borrowed. And they took that, and in many cases, they did... They either went and spent it on consumer goods, such as consumer electronics and and things of that nature, which did help to bring the worldwide economy back, okay? Or, in some cases, they said, wow, I'm in the real estate business now. Maybe I'll go use that as a down payment and start buying up other real estate, which only furthered what actually was a form of inflation in the real estate business. Right, so that that was uh, one of the conditions of what was going on, and clearly also the competition factor that the banks uh, and lending institutions got very, very aggressive in going after that refinance business, and and again, uh, without regard for the ability to repay, uh, they were loaning money to people who had no business borrowing right. more money. So what about what about the next C? So, you know, basically you then have capital, which we've been, I've made mention of. So in a mortgage, how much money did one put down? Uh, you know, would provide the lender with a margin on the value of the home so that, in fact, if you did put 20% down from a lender's perspective, even if the home fell 20% in value, they would still get out whole. Okay, in a business, the same thing. It, it's an indication of, one, the belief that various investors have in a business by how much they're willing to put their own capital at risk. The the biggest risk capital should be that of the owners and the investors who stand to profit the most in a business. Um, and uh, it also, the more capital one has in a business, uh, the more they're able to withstand a possible downturn in that business, and so and to weather a storm like we find ourselves in today, and um, you know more businesses go out of business because they started out undercapitalized than anything else, and uh, that's always the primary reason why why a business fails. Right, but it it also is so tightly coupled with character. And, with and it, that, without that question. Is, that is the last of the season. I think, uh, you know, as you and I had discussed yesterday and have discussed uh, in, in many months over, over being uh, co-invested in a business, that character is everything. It really is. And, you know, think of how much disappointment we've had when we see the Madoffs of the world and, and find out there's a Ponzi scheme going on. And if you don't have the honesty and the integrity uh, behind um, these loans and behind the people and the business, then frankly, you could have everything else, but without character and honesty and integrity, you have nothing uh, because any of us can be defrauded. It doesn't matter how smart you are and how much checking you do. Uh, I think I, I mentioned to you at one point uh, there was a famous case of an olive oil company that had fully audited statements and they had all this olive oil in industry and the auditors came in and they opened up the barrels and they saw the oil in the barrels and they 
the bar- lender was lending against the inventory and only to discover when things went bad that what the company had done is filled the barrels with water but floated about an inch worth of olive oil on the top of each one. Right. And, and uh, you know, that's just one example of somebody who, you know, with bad character. But, uh, yeah, and I think it, it, the other interesting thing, Don, is because of the role that technology plays in so much of what we do these days, I was hearing a story on, I think, uh, ABC uh, World News tonight about, uh, and I, I forget what they call it, but people are actually glomming on to the caller ID uh, capability that uh, the phone systems support, and they can actually adopt someone else's phone number, such as the IRS, or your bank, and mm-hmm. they disguise their voice. Uh, you know, it's part of this software package that you can now buy, and right. and they disguise themselves. And and you know, the legitimate use of that they say is for secret shopping, but uh, in reality, uh, those who lack character are using mm-hmm. this to obtain uh, personal information and banking information, and uh, you know, uh, for the purpose of identity theft. And and so it's really really scary <laughs> now uh, of all of the different ways that you have to protect yourself about people who do lack character, and you know if if you are in a position to be loaning money to someone, you know of how you do that appropriate vetting and uh, you know make those decisions. Without any question, and and you know when one thinks, I mean it's interesting today. Um, many of the defenses in a foreclosure proceeding is asking the lender who is in fact foreclosing on me because the the mortgage servicers are there doing the foreclosure as opposed to the lender and in many cases they actually don't even know who the lender really is um and obviously in cases like that it's true the other way around. They have no idea, as opposed to your community banker who would have known someone borrowing money, um, the, the borrowers and the character of the borrower were basically unknown or they were totally relying on a FICO score, which in many cases has not proven to be a very adequate uh, predictor of someone's likelihood of repayment. Right. And, Chris, I've dominated the questions. Did you have anything that you wanted to ask Don? This has been a fascinating discussion to listen to, and I appreciate that Don came. Um, I just had one thing that popped into my head as you were talking, Don, and this was a few years ago. I remember opening up the paper here in Dallas and looking at the front page, and it was either the business section or the lifestyle section, and the whole front page article with a huge photograph was a young man in his probably early 30s, in front of a home in what we would consider one of the best neighborhoods, think, you know, high-cost living um, in Dallas, and he was talking about how he was so smart by doing a zero down payment and interest-paying only loan because he was able to get more money from investing that in, you know, the stock market or whatever, and then maybe it was an arm or something else he was going to pay later. And he was espousing this entire kind of financial planning process. And I remember looking at that and just going, oh, my God, has the world gone mad? 
Exactly. <laughs> and the answer is, yes, the world did go mad. We just didn't see the worst of it until October and November of last year. You know, and to watch somebody espousing that and to watch this young man who, you know, was so young that he didn't understand the concept of getting laid off or, you know, all those kind of things and this assumption that everything would always appreciate and I was like, oh, my God, you know, am I really missing something? Do I need to go back to personal finance training, you know? <laughs> exactly. And and that's the point is that the conditions, the the economic climate, the uh, environment is also such an important part here. And, and when one has never faced a downturn, you tend to look at the world through rose-colored glasses, which is what they were doing. Right. And the rose-colored glasses got a bit uh, cloudy. And, uh, Don, in the last uh, uh, three or four minutes that we have left here, what caused everything to crash down in October and November? What was different? Well, um, basically, you you ended up with... um, You know, we've all heard of the credit markets freezing up. And that is, in fact, uh, what started to take place. Um, You know, when you have these incredibly highly leveraged uh, transactions and there was a rule put in place, uh, again, the law of unintended consequences, after Enron, which was a fraud, which one can never protect yourself fully from fraud, the government decided to try to legislate a way to um, get around the character issue, and they put in in place something called mark-to-market, saying if we know exactly what anything um, is worth at any point in time in the marketplace, that's good for investors, and they should have more information. And again, a a reasonable position but the law of unintended consequences became as the market started to sour and as the supply of these loans became greater and greater and the perceived risk became greater and greater from a repayment point, the price that uh, they were valued at shrunk. And each and every day that that security was on a, a bank's balance sheet, as the price went down, they took a hit to capital. And in order to have the best returns on one's equity, you tried to stay relatively highly leveraged as a bank to get this great return on equity. But as those prices went down, the amount, because there are certain rules as to what your asset base can be based on your capital, the banks were being forced to sell this paper to meet their own existing capital requirements. And by doing that, you ended up making an even greater supply of this paper on the market, which drove the prices down and created what was referred to as that downward spiral, which is why the government stepped in to try to, the first thing was let's inject capital into the banks to try to stop that downward spiral. And the problem was that the amount of capital necessary to do that, given the speed and then given the almost immediate 
downturn in the economy, which put them in even greater risk, uh, the amounts are, are just staggering in size as to what's actually needed. And part of it's psychological. Right. And, and, and one of the issues that you're dealing with now is the banks don't want to be forced to sell these assets. And, you know, you've heard the Fed saying good bank, bad bank, sell assets, do all of that. Um, they're hoping to unfreeze this, but what they recognize is the market has overpriced the risk factor, and they really believe they will collect far more than what the price of that security is now is, and that's one of the many issues that the government's wrestling with. Right. Well, I think the bottom line, Don, and, and I think you articulated this so beautifully in going through and enumerating each of the five Cs, uh, capital conditions, capacity to repay, collateral and character that if you only have you know three out of the five or two out of the five uh, your risk goes up uh, substantially uh, in loaning money and whether you're a government whether you're a big business a bank a small business or an investor uh, really all five have to be there Don I really appreciate your time um, I'm actually going to get our, our next guest on the air so you can say hello because I believe you guys know each other Ron good morning good morning how are you I'm doing fine I was just saying goodbye to Don Russell and I asked him yesterday if you guys knew each other and he uh, he said that you did so I thought I'd let you guys say hello hello Don. how are you Ron how's BJ doing doing well doing well yeah. I'll chat with you well, later about it. But, uh, terrific. Well, uh, we are going to be uh, uh, moving on to the topic of faith in the marketplace. Don, thank you so much for your time, and thank I you. can't wait to hear how this uh, speech plays in China. I understand your trip has been moved back to the fall, but uh, it'll be really interesting to see their, their reaction. Thank you so much. Okay, Great job, Don, Don. Capital conditions right. and capacity to repay. <laughs> oh, Thanks. yeah. Okay, great. Well, Ron, we are going to focus on on the issue of character with you, which is is one of the five C's. I think you probably heard he uh, Don was talking to us about financial health, uh, yes. both uh, in our country, in our businesses, and in our families, and how you know all of those things: capital conditions, capacity, collateral, and character all have to be in place. And uh, the reason I asked you to be on our show is because uh, I believe you to be an absolute man of character. I have observed that in everything you have said and done since we have met. And let me just tell folks uh, how I got to know you. I, I've spoken a lot about Real Estate Lives uh, on this show. Uh, Real Estate Lives is uh, an organization uh, and a completely volunteer organization to date that has been put together here in the Tampa area to provide all kinds of assistance, both what we call first responder uh, assistance when someone has lost their job and they've got no capacity uh, to pay and, in fact, no capacity to even buy groceries. Uh, this organization actually helps link them up with community resources uh, to have their needs met, all the way up through helping what we call rebounders uh, figure out what they're going to do next and getting them equipped with the right tools and the mentoring uh, to uh, to move on. Ron, why don't you just give us a little bit of your personal background, and then uh, we'll just dive into the subject of, of how you live faith in the marketplace, and I'd like to hear a little bit also about uh, your uh, involvement in life work leadership. Well, thank you very much, Shiki. It's a great honor to be on your program and to share um, a little bit of background. I grew up in North Carolina, 
in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill as an undergraduate in history and then off to Harvard Law School and then to practice law uh, in Tampa. And how did you get involved? Uh, now, I understand in, in your law practice, you actually specialize in a lot of things that have to do with land use and, and the real estate market, which here in Tampa, I don't think you can be an attorney and not get involved in the real estate market in one way, shape, or form. Exactly. There are about 115 lawyers in our firm in four cities, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, and Tallahassee, and about 30 of us uh, specialize in real estate. And in our case, uh, I chair the uh, eight-person uh, environmental and land use law department of the firm. Now, one of the things um, that that I asked you to give us background on, uh, and actually I interviewed the head of the organization here in Tampa on Tuesday, and that is LifeWork Leadership. Yes, can we back? Excellent. And, and have you uh, gone through their program? I have. In fact, uh, we're just concluding it. Um, we have had uh, eight excellent months of focus on um, issues like character, and uh, and issues of our faith in the marketplace and our faith as far as helping each other as a matter of fellowship and as a matter of faith. Well, it's interesting because uh, I, I have actually been invited to the, the May 5th uh, final uh, session of, of that training, and, and I am hoping to be able to go through uh, the entire program in the fall. But one of the very interesting things uh, in talking to Ken is that this last uh, segment that is coming up is going to be focusing on leaving a legacy. And uh, anyone who has listened to our show on a regular basis knows that leaving a legacy is really what we're all about. Uh, quite often in business and in the marketplace, people focus just on accomplishments or, you know, how many toys they collect, uh, quite frankly, of, uh, you know, who lives in, in the biggest and best house and has the best car and goes on the greatest vacations. And it's pretty easy to get caught up in that. You have been uh, working with a group of business leaders from Tampa um, in the LifeWork Leadership course that are all uh, taking a little bit longer-term view of business than most people do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. About maybe six months ago, there were six or eight of us who were senior folks in real estate who had been involved in two or three or four previous recessions, talking about how this seemed to be starting to be the, the worst one we had ever seen, and we needed to do something about it. And then about two weeks later, we were circling again, and this time – one of the members of the group simply said, I'm sending young real estate professionals who have been laid off out to Colorado to mine shale. And I thought to myself, now that reminds me of my the stories of my father and his seven brothers, all of whom described what they did back in the 1930s to put food on the table. And some wow. of them drove trucks and some of them went to other states and, and got jobs and sent the money back and all kinds of ways that they coped with the Great Depression in the 1930s. And it reminded me that if you're a young real estate professional in Tampa and your family needs to eat, you'll do anything. And why don't we help those people? They desperately need our help. They've been good to us for the last 13 years, so we started Real Estate Lives. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough, even though I've had nothing to do with the real estate community, um, one of your key uh, volunteers, Pam Winchester, is a very dear friend of mine, and Pam asked me if I would come in and, and work with those rebounders in helping them retool uh, what they were doing and be part of the mentoring program. 
Um, how many lives have you touched in that program, Ron? We have 188 resumes, and we've noticed that uh, for every resume we receive, there's one person that we have counseled with or talked to or helped with our four missions. And the four missions are, number one, is to um, help folks with their self-esteem, to get back on their feet and to get active again and to stay active and to network and to, uh, and to keep a strong, positive attitude. And secondly is to help them with immediate family and other needs as far as urgent needs. And some of them need food, some need shelter, some need help with their foreclosure, uh, family problems, and, and, and sometimes emotional uh, problems. And then thirdly is retraining with some additional scholarships and additional schooling and additional programs, that some of which are free and some of which are small tuition. Uh, that can help them to retrain. And then fourthly is to helping them find a job. And of the 188 resumes we've received, uh, 28 people have found jobs, and uh, over 100 have been enabled to have uh, interviews, uh, productive interviews in the direction of jobs. So we're hopeful that we can uh, achieve another 5 or 10 or 15 um, job placements every month. You know, I found it really interesting uh, when, when Pam was sharing with me last week. I, w I wasn't able to come to the, the leadership meeting, but that Elaine, who actually uh, heads up helping people, uh, you know, get placed and taking in their resumes, she had actually gotten her uh, pink slip, if you will, uh, not long ago. And uh, I heard that she actually found a job uh, this past week, which is a, a really cool story for you know, one of the key volunteers to actually uh, you know, use the program to find her own position as well. And talk about legacy and succession planning. She, in fact, had been training several folks uh, to help her, and then they now are helping her as she went back to work last Monday after uh, being out of work for a couple of months. And so she's experienced all aspects of what we do and how we do it. Uh, all this is volunteers. There's no charge, of course. And we have been uh, fortunate in that the real estate investment um, group here in town, REIC, uh, has uh, donated uh, $5,000 to us to help us with some of these programs. But basically wow. uh, that helps us because we don't charge anything. We're just a volunteer group, and we work basically on uh, little to no budget because our, our hearts are in helping those that have been good to us for the last 13 years now that uh, they're hurting. Right. And, Ron, I understand also you have had other communities here in Florida who have expressed an interest in replicating the program uh, and, and that a couple of them actually came to the meeting last week. How, how are you helping them move forward to do this same kind of thing locally? There are two or three communities around Florida that have um, experienced uh, great uh, real estate distress as we have, including Naples, uh, sent three people up last uh, week to our meeting, and uh, we had about 80 people attending. And we uh, meet at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning of April 22nd, and again at 9 o'clock on May the 15th, and again at 9 o'clock on May the 29th, if you're interested in helping us to help people, either mentor or to serve in leadership role, Helping Real Estate Lives, which is an all-volunteer organization. Um, there's obviously no charge for any of these services. It's just all volunteers. And that's at the Greater Tampa Association of Realtors Building, which is 2918 West Kennedy. Then at 10 o'clock on the same morning of April 22nd, and at 10 o'clock on the morning of May the 15th, and at, 8, at 10 o'clock on the morning of May the 29th, we have those rebounders, those looking for a job and these other uh, needs to come in at, to the large auditorium at the Greater Tampa Association of Realtors building at 2918 West Kennedy, and we help them at 10 o'clock on the mornings of April the 22nd and May the 15th and May the 29th. And so, Ron, if there are other 
organizations outside of the state of Florida who, uh, you know, have a similar need. I know that there are other communities uh, in Arizona and and, uh, Nevada that have been hit, uh, you know, as hard as the Tampa area, uh, partially, well, uh, in large part because they are the same kind of of, uh, destination for people who live half a year uh, in one place and half a year in another, and as a result also became great for investment real estate. And uh, so, you know, those communities are hit very, very hard. So how would they get involved? Would they contact you, uh, you know, to to learn more about the organization and, and, you know, moving this forward in their communities? Sure, they could uh, contact me or they could contact uh, Amy Hendrickson, who's our volunteer membership coordinator, who uh, helps uh, interview those who want a place in some of our leadership roles. Uh, Pam Winchester, that's P. Winchester, at focus, F-O-C-U-S-R-E, services.com is her email. Uh, Mine is R-W-E-A-V-E-R at S-W-M-W-A-S.com. And then our, our website is realestatelives.org, and all of these emails and all of these meeting notices and all of the details of how you can register, how you can put your resume in our system and get job alerts that we post uh, routinely. We've been mining uh, hundreds of jobs for the last uh, five months and have uh, found not only the 28 placements but also have led about 150 different job uh, acquaintances uh, to other people in order for them to then get interviews on the realestatelives.org website. And, Ron, one of the things uh, that really impressed me about you when I met you is, is that you are very, very open about uh, the fact that your faith drives you to do a lot of what you do. Uh, you're not just doing it for personal gain, and, and you really do have uh, uh, kind of the eternity view of things versus just, uh, you know, short-term what's going to help the Tampa marketplace. And when I was interviewing Ken on, on Tuesday, it was – very interesting to look at the whole mission of LifeWork Leadership, uh, the the training program that I was mentioning earlier, that, you know, they set out, again, uh, you know, to help individuals who are in a leadership role to really reconcile, uh, you know, what they're doing against that eternal perspective versus just against a three- to five-year business plan that, that is the normal uh, you know, business-oriented approach. And and what I would like to hear from you is, uh, you know, what you have seen in your own life. Have you always been uh, what I will call an integrated leader in, in that uh, your faith wasn't just segregated on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or whenever you were involved in specific church activity, um, you know, but really making it a part of who you are in every aspect of your life? I think over the last 30 years... And Ron, can I, I get you to speak up just high, a little certainly. bit? You, you are going softer and softer on us, which is a little bit hard certainly. to hear in the air. Certainly. Uh, over the last 30 years, I've noticed that very many of the people, like uh, the leadership in real estate uh, lives, for example, that many of them have been praying about fellow members, either their church or uh, their family members, and that in praying for their family members, they've noticed that one of the best ways in their prayer for their family members to help the family members was to help someone else and then to notice that maybe the someone 
else in the organization had been praying for someone else, but they didn't happen to have the acquaintances, the contacts, the skill set, or the knowledge, or the network to really be as much help. And I've noticed that these prayers are being answered exponentially, and I've noticed that for the 30 years uh, that I've watched, uh, as in Matthew uh, 5, 5, when you pray, don't be like those show-offs who love to stand up and pray in the meeting places and on the street corners. They do this just to look good. I can assure you they already have their reward. When you pray, go into a room alone and close the door and pray to your Father in right. private. He knows what is done in private, and he will reward you. But well, we've been rewarded with the most amazing explosion of people who come up, like yourself, and uh, Elaine Kennedy and Pam Winchester and, and Brenda Doring um, and Steve Ernst and, and, and dozens of people who have just stepped up to the plate with magnificent contributions of dozens of hours out of their own heart looking for absolutely nothing in return except the answered prayer that not only are they helping fellow church members and helping sometimes family members, but often they're simply helping folks that make their life more fulfilled and do, as you said, live, leave that legacy, that they have helped folks in the community in ways that are so fulfilling for them that they are getting the biggest reward as those that are actually serving real estate lives. Right. I, I've seen that as well. Well, it, it has been uh, just very interesting to me to watch that group and, and in particular uh, to really put their faith into action because, you know, again, uh, I, and I'm not uh, as good at, at my memory of, of Scripture as you are, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, God's Word talks about not just making a show of, of, you know, telling someone that you'll pray for them. You know, it's like going up to someone who's homeless and saying, you know, I'm praying for you. Well, you know, it might be better just to, you know, stop at Arby's and get, get them a couple of sandwiches and, and uh, a bottle of water, you know, and, and then your gesture will be much more meaningful to them. And so, you know, I really love to see when people put their faith into action and, again, are willing to, uh, you know, to have that long-term view uh, understanding that, you know, they, they will have blessing from what they're doing, but uh, as you so aptly put it, not, not standing on the corner and doing it for show. And also it says in Matthew uh, 6, uh, 25, I tell you not to worry about your life. Don't worry about having something to eat, drink, or wear. Isn't life more than food or clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't plant or harvest. They don't even store grain in barns, yet your Father in heaven takes care of them. Aren't you worth more than the, than the birds? Um, can can worry make you live longer? And as we learn from the scripture, uh, much of what is going on in real estate lives is really emotional support, not just in yeah. helping them find networks exactly. and placement. It's the emotional support, uh, which is also an answered prayer for for some. Right, and and you know clearly when uh, and just thinking back to some of the things that Don said, when when you're in the position where you can't make your mortgage payment, and and in fact you can't even get the bank to return your phone call until you're 90 days past due in your loan, the emotional toll that that takes on you is difficult, and and sometimes it is hard. Uh, you know, to look at the scripture that you just quoted and, and knowing that God indeed takes care of the birds, but what about me? And and what about me and my circumstance? So that emotional support during that time when they can't see the answer to prayer right in front of them is so, so essential. Yes. And, uh, well, Chris, once again, I've, I've dominated the, uh, the questions. Uh, I, I know you've heard me talk about Real Estate Lives and, and what it has done for our community here. Um, have you seen any kind of similar efforts in, in the Dallas area where you are? No, it, you know, Dallas has been really blessed 
we didn't have the dramatic blow up of appreciation, you know, being centrally located, not being on one of the coasts, I think mattered. And again, you know, we're not Las Vegas, we're not Tampa, we didn't have so much of that. We've had a dramatic slowdown, but most of the properties have retained their value and continue to appreciate in a little, little bit, you know. Right. So, so no, but we've had, we've had other issues, you know, and we, we've, um, but I have not minded at all, Chicky, that you have had this discussion. I know this is near and dear to your heart. It's so local for you and something that I know you're trying to um, start participating in. So, you know, um, Ron, I thank you very much for being on here and continuing to share your life's work, I mean, the way you live your life and the way you have found ways to, to contribute to your community and incorporate that in your day-to-day life. And Ron, what are what are some of the other things you mentioned that that you've already been through eight months of the Life Work Leadership um, course? Can you tell us about some of the different speakers that you guys have had and and uh, some of the messages that have come forth in that? I know uh, this next one on on May fifth, Wayne Heisinga is one of the key speakers, and I'm yes. really looking forward to hearing him. I you know respect respect greatly uh you know his business initiatives and so it'll be fun to hear hear the faith side of his story yes wayne heisinger jr was very helpful in the luis palau um crusade here uh, a year or two ago in tampa and in others all over the uh, all over the world including his own down in fort lauderdale and so wayne heisinger jr's been showing his faith as has ed coble who was a magnificent um person of faith uh, at the barlow corporation here in tampa Mm-hmm. These community leaders all over the state and the nation and the world uh, have inspired us um, at, at LifeWork Christian Leadership, as has Al Weiss, whose leadership at Disney included his daughter's uh, acceptance at Stetson and her softball games. He told her he was going to go see them, and then he was offered an opportunity to run uh, the, the, even more of the Disney organization, but he had to move to L.A., and he simply told Michael Eisner, you know, respectfully, uh, Mr. Eisner, I'd love to come out to L.A. and run uh, a larger portion of, uh, of, of Disney's empire, but I promised my daughter I'm going to be at each of her games at Stetson where she was just accepted on that softball team, and I'm going to be there for her, and I guess that means if I have to move to L.A., I'll need to find some other place to work, to which Mr. Eisner very astutely uh, checked with uh, one or two folks uh, on his board probably and said, well, then fly out here every Sunday night and chair the meetings on Monday morning and then head back and attend to your daughter because you've put your priorities first. And in Al Weiss's faith, which he'd learned from his father, who was a church planter, we have heard from dozens of leaders all over the world who have shared their faith and told us what really matters to them, like Al Weiss's uh, devotion to his daughter and his promise to his daughter over anything else and everything else. Well, that that's one that's near and dear to my heart, too. And, and actually, a couple of weeks ago, we ended up canceling the show because I, I couldn't be talking about faith in the marketplace and life balance uh, when it was my, my uh, son's special program at school and, and telling him I had to miss it uh, because of that. So, um, you know, integrating our all aspects of our lives, I think, is a part of real, true leadership and demonstrating to the people who work with us and for us and who depend on us uh, to be very, very clear about those priorities and, and what drives them. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's uh, a part of, of the program of life work leadership. Now I know that 
you, you also start out that program, you know, talking about kind of the practical side of, of business as well and, and, you know, being good business leaders and making good decisions. But, uh, again, coming back to those principles of servant leadership, of understanding that the old styles of command and control leadership just uh, aren't effective anymore. And Chris and I have had a lot of discussions with, with various people about different methodologies of, of leadership and, uh, you know, actually turning and serving the people who work for you is, is uh, certainly a tried-and-true method uh, over 2,000 years old. Exactly. And that servant leadership uh, part of, of life work Christian leadership has been basically a series of case studies, two or three every meeting, every month, in which after about six or seven minutes, the the narrators, uh, like Jay Lippy, will simply stop and say, what would you do in that situation as you get to a turning point, a crossroads in your life and your faith and your, right. uh, in, your, in your career? And, uh, and, and the uh, fellows, uh, the, the, the men and the women of the class actually present what they might have done in that situation. And then they hear what the actual speaker did with that particular fork in the road with respect to faith or career. Right. Well, I am uh, very excited about uh, attending the meeting next month uh, with LifeWork Leadership, and I'm glad that next week I'm able to get to the Real Estate Lives meeting. And uh, it is just a pleasure to work with you, Ron, and and a real delight to get to know you better. And it's so funny to see how many people we know in common uh, uh, even though I have not traveled in the circles that you have, uh, again, when I was talking to Don yesterday, apparently your daughter and uh, and uh, uh, her husband uh, are linked to Don through through some other uh, relationships. So it's yes, a very they... very small world. <laughs> it's a small small world. He, uh, he he and his lovely wife threw a party in their honor. Um, it's it's just a great coincidence and a great uh, sharing of faith and love of our family. Well, definitely, and Don has been uh, my primary investor in, in the company that I've building, been building for the last three years, and uh, through uh, uh, the ups and the downs and the really, really downs, uh, he has been uh, just rock solid in his uh, belief in me, which uh, you know has been greatly appreciated and is, is also largely due to the fact that uh, you know his faith is a big part of of how he operates in business, and, uh, you know, that's what brought us together. And Pam Winchester, our mutual friend, uh, her heart for the Lord, her heart for those that are hurting, her selfless devotion 24-7, sometimes seven days a week to the, the urgent <laughs> needs. She chairs our immediate urgent needs group, and she, uh, her heart is so rich for those that are in need, and she is so helpful 24-7 to folks who need it the most, and does it in such a sweet and loving and Christ-like yeah. way uh, with a servant's heart, looking for no credit whatsoever just for the joy of knowing that she is serving her Lord. So Pam Winchester is one of those that makes life worth living for well, all the and rest a- of us. Absolutely. Her and I, again, I think the really cool thing that you've been able to do with the leadership uh, of Real Estate Lives is you've been able to take people like Pam, who had been uh, you know, a leader in commercial real estate, and take their mm-hmm. skill sets of, of what they were so um, adept at doing in business and, and translated it into uh, this charity function where, uh, and, and again, charity is a, a misaligned word sometimes when it comes to this, but, but really meeting people's needs uh, precisely where they are and uh, acknowledging that people aren't just the financial or business side of themselves, 
you know, but they uh, have emotional needs and physical needs. And uh, I, I just love the way that you're leading that uh, organization, Ron, and I just applaud uh, what you're doing. I hope that there are other communities around the country who can learn uh, from the model of what you've done. And, and one of the things that uh, maybe you and I ought to talk about at the next meeting is uh, is writing up a case study uh, about what you've done that could be used as a model uh, and not be a drain on, on your current organization of, of helping other communities. But uh, I could help you get that published out over various social media channels for other communities that are hurting. Beautiful. Okay. Well, listen, you have a wonderful day, and again, thank you so much for your time this morning. God bless you all, and thank you, Chris, and thank you, Chicky. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Well, Chris, you are off on a new venture. You're you're helping out uh, yet another startup. I, I uh, thought you had gotten enough of that, but apparently the the thrill of it has grabbed you once again. Yes, I know. I'm sick. It's okay. Take my temperature. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's nothing so fun. There's nothing so engaging. There's nothing that that takes that uses every you know, every ounce of creativity and and thought and functional expertise and keeps you from being bored, right? Well, not only that, Chris, you, you just have so much to offer, uh, you know, really people at any stage of business, whether it is needing to revitalize their business or start it up. But I am, uh, I am very glad for you that they have found you because, uh, you know, there is nothing like the win-win-win-win that comes out of having people with the right skills, um, you know, meeting a company's need at the right place. And, you know, I mean, I look at, at, at and we'll just kind of move in, in an unorganized way this morning since I know uh, you have been busy with this new role and didn't get a chance uh, to listen to the shows on Tuesday. Um, I know, I'm so disappointed because... Well, you, you know, the nice thing is you still can go back and, and do it, but... Um, I'd like to actually start with with what Don talked about because, you know, he called me a couple of weeks ago and told me that he had the opportunity to go to China uh, with one of the other individuals um, that we interviewed on the show, the author of uh, 10,000 Horses, Ken Jennings. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, again, very, very small world, but that's actually how I met uh, Ken was, was through Don. And uh, so they were supposed to be going to China next week, and Don had been asked to talk about the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, as he started talking through all of of the issues, um, you know, that he walked us through today of of taking a look at businesses having enough capital, having the, the right conditions to succeed, uh, you know, the capacity to repay if they do actually borrow money or the capacity to really generate revenues versus just having a great idea or a great product or a great technology. You know, having the collateral that if things go south, uh, you know, that there is a way to revive the business. And then the whole issue of, of character. And, you know, I this is so near and dear to my heart because of having just lived through, uh, you know, the last three years of a startup. I would be interested just in your take on, uh, you know, the current venture that you're involved in and, and, and what level of awareness do you think there is among startup businesses as a whole of the importance of those five C's? You know, 
I, oh, <laughs> I think, so to answer your last question first, how aware do I think uh, most entrepreneurs and, and, and startups are of the five Cs? I think badly. They're not. I think they realize at some kind of ephemeral, kind of in a cloud level, and they've all heard the comment that, you know, lack of collateral is really the reason, lack of funding, lack of resources is the reason most businesses fail, but there's no concrete understanding of what that means, right? right. So there's this concept that, oh, I just raised money, or oh, I'm going to have to raise money, or, or something like that, but no real... Um, I don't know, no, no follow-through on, okay, that means that I'm going to have to be very careful about the use of the funds that I receive right. or that I'm going to have to anticipate worst-case scenarios in order to make sure that I um, you know, keep as much money as possible and, and think through things carefully. And then I think on the side of investors, there's often not an understanding of the character or a look at some of the collateral conditions issues when they're putting money into people or right. into businesses, right? And also not bringing their own resources to assist that business. There's kind of this very hands-off kind of Oh, way. I know. I know. And that's a big one. And it's so interesting, Chris, because uh, yesterday I had uh, the good fortune to be introduced to a potential investor uh, oh. in, in my business. Uh, or in our business, uh, the one that Don and I are still invested in. And uh, it was so interesting having this perspective of the five C's uh, and being able to talk about the business in light of those five things and to be able to talk about the things that I knew we had done wrong, the mistakes we had made, the learning we had done in each of those areas. Because it's so easy to say, oh, well, you raised $7 million and it failed. Well, you know, we always knew we needed ten. So right. it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone right. that you know if you only raise seven and that only gets you to forty five days after launch of your product and you don't have money to continue to pay your payroll, exactly. well then failure will occur and this is not an unintended consequence. It's actually intentional that that's the way capital works. So um, you know I'm thinking of you know because of this need in business to really understand this, particularly as an entrepreneur, that you know maybe this is my next book, and I think I would add another C to it, which is a C that you taught me, and that's about communication, <laughs> which I think is very closely tied to character. Uh, but I would I would actually put it separately, and and what I'm talking about is the masterful way that you managed communication when you were part of the startup that we had built uh, in in our consulting company, Solutions Group, with LasVegas.com, and you were in the really incredible position. I'm, I'm not not even going to say that it, it was was uh, an obstacle, but you were in an amazing position where you were communicating as the leader of that organization with two uh, members, board members, and actually multiple uh, uh, board individuals um, from competing companies that uh, jointly owned that firm. And while you didn't have to worry so much about capital or maybe even 
about the you know conditions because times were actually quite good at that point. The recovery yep. in Las Vegas had happened after September 11th. While you had stiff competition with Vegas.com, you had some really interesting things that happened there where every time they advertised, and they had a pretty big advertising budget, and you had a zero advertising budget, if I remember, but people would go to LasVegas.com instead of Vegas.com, which was pretty cool. <laughs> and then, you know, if you look at the capacity to repay, you didn't really have a repayment issue other, you know, since the goal wasn't really, uh, you know, profitability. It was really to raise the average daily room rate. Uh, and then you go through and, you know, and they didn't really have the same issues of collateral. But you did have the issues of character and communication. So talk to me a little bit about how it played in that kind of a venture that wasn't, I mean, it was a startup, but it, it was a well-funded startup. It was and wasn't, right? So there was continuous, um, you know, nobody likes to give their money to other people, period. <laughs> Whether it's inside a large corporation and, you know, the cash cow business unit is supposed to fund the new startup business unit until they get revenue. There's a battle at the boardroom level there. Um, in this situation, we were a little kind of non-core asset. Not everybody understood why it was beneficial to the larger organization. Well, um, clearly, since they let it go when uh, Mandalay uh, sold out to MGM and uh, Caesars sold out to Harris. Yeah, and, you know, and there's always underlying agendas, you know, the whole politics thing of, of you and I have always shared the fact that my strong belief is that if everyone has the same information and the same goals, we should all come to the same conclusion right. about what to do moving forward. That's really kind of the way I live life. So if we're not coming to the same conclusion, I have to assume that either one of us doesn't have the same set of information or one of us has a hidden agenda. And I was always dealing with hidden agendas <laughs> right. at, at that particular institution. So the only thing that I could do was make my communication as obvious, straightforward, and public as possible so that I wasn't accused of hidden agendas. And so that we could have, have right. discussions whenever we were having discussions, we had to have them about the information just sitting in front of us. And then I had another challenge, which was that I was educating at the same time. So not only did they not get strategically why we existed, but they actually didn't understand the business that we were in, <laughs> right? Not everybody at, around the table. So, well, and I, I don't think that's uncommon with investors. Now, you know, I mean, they were really strategic investors versus financial investors, so they should have known, and, and I know that there were people around the table that did get it, but they were uh, possibly, you know, caught up in the politics and, and, as you said, you know, the drama. You you were dealing with so much drama, and, and that's where maybe it isn't an, an issue of character, and there, I don't know if we can find a, a C to represent the uh, the drama that goes on. Um, I'll have to pull out my thesaurus this afternoon. But, uh, you know, I think as you move into a new venture like you are doing now, uh, that you are so much better equipped I mean, don't don't you think so? And even living vicariously through me, <laughs> through watching, uh, through a lot of the drama in my life in, in the last uh, three years. But you know, and that's I think that's the point. And and basically, as I looked at this list that Don had, I was really excited to see that this was a way for me to actually clarify why I chose this startup. 
Right. Right? Because over the years, since the last one I was with, I have entertained or been invited to participate in or, you know, a number of different opportunities and have said no thank you to most of them. And I'm looking at this list and going, now I could very clearly explain why I said no thank you, but I had to rely on my gut at the time, right? And so if I look at this, some of it is that I I was a little concerned about the character on one or two of them. Right. Right? Um, I really didn't see the collateral or, you know, the right conditions in one of them. You know, so it's it's really interesting, and I believe that this one has a, a fighting chance because we do have all of these things lined up. Right. Well, you know, again, I, I I'm just you know me. I'm an idea a minute about uh you know taking <laughs> what I hear and and figuring out how to monetize it. I mean, I really think that there is such a need. And, and you brought out a great point right now. We've got so many people who are in between jobs. And uh, just yesterday, um, well, actually last week, uh, our neighbor had, had lost his job a few weeks ago. And, and so his wife his wife and I and Michael and I went to uh, a place here called Dinner Done where you go and, and cook, uh, you know, like a, a week's uh, worth of meals. Oh, yeah. And it, it's actually lots cheaper than uh, buying the groceries. And it also gave us the added benefit of spending time together. And he shared with me that he had been approached by a startup. And, I mean, this is somebody who has always had, you know, steady Eddie job, uh, regular paycheck from a big firm, you know, chief operating officer kind of role. And, you know, I wish I had had this list uh, to go through it with him. And, I mean, he has accepted uh, the position with this startup, and I've offered, uh, you know, different ways to help. But I am now thinking that uh, we could do a whole show about this and, and perhaps should do that and, and talk through uh, you know, all of these things as it relates to people in transition figuring out what they should do. Because well, there I, are, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just uh, going to wrap up by saying there are a lot of people uh, who are you know, perhaps still keeping one ear open for you know, that, that big fish job offer. Um, but who are taking equity and who are taking uh, a step out with companies uh, that are in the early stages, that this would help a lot. Well, exactly, and I think that's the big, that's the issue, right? So there's, there's, we've talked about the security, the feeling of security issue before, right? And corporate America gives you this false feeling of security, and people going to startups are afraid of the lack of security, right? And how that's absolutely false, because Corporate America is not secure. <laughs> right. So you're not losing any of that if you go to a startup, if you will. Right? And right. It's, I was at a networking event for unemployed um, executive women. Right? This was a group of women. Um, I went last week. It was the initial um, inaugural networking event. Every woman there was ha- um, had to have made historically greater than 150000 a year and had to have been within two levels of CEO in order to make it in the room. Right. Okay? Fascinating group. But as I mentioned that I might have a job and that this might be my last, you know, attendance, the inaugural and last, right. the women next to me just all perked up when they heard that I might have a job. They turned around and wanted to hear all about it. And as I explained that it was a startup, every single one except one turned around and walked away without listening to the rest of my sentence. Wow. 
That's very telling. Isn't it? I'm like, oh, my God. You know, is it that, are they that uninterested? Are they that fearful? Are they that disrespectful? I mean, what is, what is their perception and understanding of the startup world? Well, I think, you know, quite often it's that they have been burned and, and, or heard of someone who was. And, you know, clearly if those five C's that Don is talking about aren't in place, they perceive the risk of what you've just, you know, set out to do, uh, you know, as, as much higher than if you were to say you had landed, you know, the job as, you know, SVP of Marketing for Frito, Frito-Lay, you right. know. And, and that's, yeah, and, and, you know, I think, again, it depends on what everyone, uh, you know, what their starting point is of what they aspire to. And this is why, uh, you know, I'm such a big advocate of looking at the long term and looking at the legacy. And, you know, and sometimes you have to put some piece of your vision aside. And, you know, I mean, I'm challenged all the time about, you know, is this radio show, uh, you know, going to be a financially viable, um, you know, venture for me? And, you know, I have to say each time, right now, that hasn't been my clear intent. I mean, I have met the most amazing people. And, you know, I lived 51 years without ever being in the media and have done close to 80 radio shows since January 27th. And, you know, have met people I, you know, it would have taken me years, you know, if ever to meet some of them. And and so sometimes you do have to step out and do things that you wouldn't normally do. And, and you know, that kind of circles back to what I talked to both Ron and Ken Wyback uh, about earlier in the week. And, and that's this whole perspective of what is leadership all about and and what do we do, what decisions do we make about leadership, whether it's which leadership job to take or how are we going to lead moving forward, that is a stepping stone in, in a much longer journey than just what are you going to do in the next year. And, and you know, I mean, I hate, hate to point to, uh, you know, the situation you just talked about, but, you know, it sounds like some of those women found their uh, security and found their um, – who they were in the title that was on their business card. Exactly. That's and really and the prestige of the company rather than realizing that, uh, you know, and, and I know that, that you and I don't always agree on the specifics of what I'm going to say next, but, you know, I mean, there's a plan for Chris Bradshaw's life. And if your next thing that you have to be ready for needs some building block that you're going to get from what you're doing right now, even if this isn't going to be the venture that is going to cause you to be able to retire, you know, without uh, right. having to work or, you know, what uh, other aspirations people have right. is something that when somebody finds that, oh, I know the word I was thinking of, when somebody finds their significance in the company name that's on, on their business card, yes. you know, they will never be satisfied because there's always somebody bigger or better that they think, or maybe a title that is bigger or better, yep. and and you know, and then they end up getting beat down because they don't achieve that. And and I, the thing I've always loved about you is your ability to find significance in whatever role you're in, including the sabbatical role. Uh, and, <laughs> and each time that you have either by your own design 
or by the circumstances you found yourself in, that you found yourself in between opportunities and just have landed in in an amazing way in new things. And I think that that uh, from the earliest days that I, I knew you and, and even the, the days that led up to those early entrepreneurial days, um, you know, that that you were in each one of those things to build who you are today. You know, thank you. Thank you for all of that. And I it's interesting, you know, timing can be everything, right? And the things come to, I, think, I absolutely agree with you that the things come to us when we are ready for them or need them right? and come to us to prepare us as well for the other things. And we have to learn to embrace that, good or bad, or we believe it's good or bad, right? Right, so, right. You know, for some of the, for, and let me just take a little side note about the we believe it's good or bad. You know, for some of these people, getting laid off may be the very best thing that's happened to them. Um, you know, it sounds like this woman that uh, Ron was talking about who has taken over this real estate live, lives issue, this may, it sounds like it, this may have been more fulfilling for her than anything else she'd ever done in her life, right? Uh, absolutely. And, Chris, were you the one who told me the story uh, about the, the person in China whose son yes. had can you tell that again? Because I think that's really appropriate to what we're talking about, of your perspective on whether something is good or bad. Yeah. So the parable is that um, it's, we're in China, right? And um, there's a, a man who's got a son, and he is taking care of his fields, and his son is working alongside with him. And then one day a um, wild horse shows up, and the whole and they the son tames it. The whole village is very excited about that and says, "Oh, how lucky you are that you you know that your son found a wild horse and now you own a horse." Blah blah blah. Right? Makes him richer than everybody else. Then one day his son runs off and isn't helping dad, and he's riding his horse, and he breaks a leg or something. Right? And so the whole village is, "Oh, you have such a bad son. He ran off and." Um, did, you know, broke his leg. So in the first thing, with when he gets the horse, they're all like, oh, you are so lucky, right? And the dad says, well, I don't know, time will tell. So the next time when the guy breaks, when the son breaks his leg, the village is, oh, you are so unlucky. And the dad says, well, I don't know, time will tell. Then the third thing that happens is that the Chinese army comes through and drafts every single available child but they don't draft his son because his son has a broken leg. So the village is like, oh, how lucky you are. You know, and dad's like, I don't know, time will tell. But basically, yes, it was the case that having found the horse, having broken the leg, everything did end up being good for him because he did get to keep his son, right? So right. each of those individual instances, you don't know. You know, right. and and that's the thing. You don't know till you're looking back over all of it, right? And you right. go, oh my gosh, you know, in hindsight. And you know, we do that now, where we look back at choices we made in college, or choices we made with friends or spouses, right? And we're like, oh, I'm so lucky. I'm, you know, for you, for example, the impulsiveness of marrying your husband when people looked at that at the time. You were very, right. impulsive. you know, you guys were married with in less than three months. Yes, yeah, actually uh, two, mo- two months uh, minus a day. And you've been married 20 years almost. Almost, almost. So, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful partnership. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, as you take a look at, at what different people have gone through, it, it takes me back to Monday or Tuesday morning's show at 10 o'clock, where, uh, and I know you will love listening to this one, I interviewed uh, our good friend Les Ottolenghi. I know, I can't wait. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it has been so much fun watching his career. And although we didn't talk about it on the show, the, the real pinnacle of his his uh, life was actually becoming a father a year ago. And and it was so funny because uh, he and I were supposed to go to a meeting, uh, actually I think with Panasonic. Uh, oh, oh, no, it was something about the Detroit Auto Show last year. And he kept saying, he, you know, he kept being really noncommittal. And it's like, you know, what's this all about? And he finally told me that his girlfriend was going to be delivering the next week, and he hadn't told anybody that they were pregnant because uh, of her age and, and, you know, just concerns over the baby's health. But it's been so cool to watch his perspective go. And he's a brilliant inventor. He's an amazing entrepreneur. He understands, uh, you know, the the five C's of financing and the seven C's that we've talked about of, of entrepreneurial success. Uh, to a T. So you will really enjoy going back and listening to him talk about the different ventures and, and the barriers that he ran into in each of the innovations that he tried to bring forward. I can't wait. I really look forward to that. And and then uh, I also had a, a very uh, interesting guest at, at 11 a.m., and uh, her name was uh, Stacy, and uh, we talked about uh, – how people are perceived in their first impression. And so I know you will love that one. Um, She had some very, very practical tips. She's written a book called Yes, I Can and has uh, steps from A to Z over uh, overcoming obstacles and and a lot about communication. And, uh, you know, since that was one of our C's this morning, uh, as always, our shows uh, tie together really, really well. And (laughs) then, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. At 11.30, uh, Pamela and I just decided to, uh, since we had both been busy uh, uh, the previous week and and over the Easter holiday, uh, we hadn't found a guest for the show. And I said, you know what, maybe this is just meant to be. And she and I had a great time. I mean, you know what it was like for us when when we uh, took a show just all to ourselves like we're doing now uh, with this one intentionally uh, each week. But she and I just had a great talk about our own uh, entrepreneurial uh, experiences, and it'll be funny now for me to go back and listen to it and to try to frame it in each of these seven C's that uh, that we've gotten to today because I I believe that a story played out this week, as it always does, of how uh, that all comes together uh, uh, in in the full story for our lives and giving us uh, you know direction of kind of where to go from here and that brings me back around to our first show this morning and the uh, real life renovations show where we had uh, Jen uh, Witter on this morning and of course Phil and Amy who are our partners in that show and I'm going to add one more C because it's all about commitment. Uh. Okay, because Uh, look at what happens in an entrepreneurial venture. I mean, let alone your workout program or your your eating and and wellness program. But look what happens in an entrepreneurial venture when maybe people have the right conditions, they got the right salary, they got the right stock options, but the commitment is to the contract and not to the company. Oh, we got lots of C's there. Oh I am just on an alliteration roll here today. Oh, 
I know you have personal experience in that. Well, you know, commitment, is, it's a very interesting thing because, Chris, this week, I mean, I know you're aware uh, that in our own business, Don and I are trying to figure out how, how to move forward, uh, you know, to the next phase of the company. Uh, we invested $7 million in building a really incredible technology and, and are still running into industry barriers of, of uh, really being still on that bleeding edge before people have realized that they need uh, what we created. And, and uh, you know, I've actually come to peace with that. But we've got some of those character issues of making sure that we are going back to those people that we owe money to and, and uh, you know, closing the loop with them. And it was interesting this week as I took a look out of the people that we owe money to, which ones have fully supported us with a commitment um, to still be there even though that they know that there is money owed. And, you know, and sometimes you'll see people who do that just for the money, you know, to make sure that they're in the front of the line. Yep. And other people who do it because of their character mm. and their commitment yep. and that it comes through in conditions that they're willing to operate under, such as not getting paid even though there's a contract in place that says that they should be. And I think that that's really the final one that pulls it all together is is commitment. And character can bring commitment to the right venture, right? Yes, but it doesn't always follow. No. Interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. I, I love it when a plan comes together. So now I've got an eight-point eight plan <laughs> that I can document and make available to entrepreneurs and to those who are considering going to work in an early-stage venture. I, I think that that is so, so important. Well, that was the plan for today's show, was to give me the material I needed. <laughs> there you go. I, th yeah, great show. And I really, really love this idea of, um, you know, applying these C's to how to evaluate, you know, going into an entrepreneurial environment in a startup. Because right. it's a very difficult thing to do. It's very hard. And, you know, till till now, I think till today, till I saw these and it kind of resonated with me and it clicked, if you will, I had had to just trust my gut, and it felt kind of silly sometimes going, well, right. you don't have a job. How are you turning that one down? <laughs> right, right. You know, and then there's the times when you're not turning it, it down, they're turning you down. But, you know, sometimes in the, in, the, um, in the final analysis, that's the best thing to happen too, you know. Oh, sure, sure. Well, and, and you can go back and be thankful that it happened in, exactly. instead of, uh, you know, uh, lamenting. And, you know, I, as, as I look back, and, and I want to share with you, we, can't, we don't have time to do it today, but uh, last Monday, uh, well, I get together every Monday morning with, you know, kind of my local support group, which includes Pam Winchester that, that Ron Weaver was talking about, and then Alain uh, Warner, who you know. Oh. And, and we, we took a, a road map, and, and I, I can't adequately do this on, on the radio, but I'm, I'm just going to mention it quickly, and then maybe we can talk about this uh, next Thursday if you're available, that um, we, we mapped out all of our, our key uh, turning points in our lives. And some of those were good points, and, and I gave those diamonds, and some of them were black dots. And those were, you know, uh, it, it could be for someone a divorce, it could be uh, losing a job, uh, you know, it could be just anything. Um, but it was so interesting for us to start pondering that 
And as I do my mentoring, which I'm doing through Real Estate Lives and also with some of the women on the Executive Girlfriends Group, um, it's a really powerful tool to look uh, at those points in your life. And so I'm going to find a way in, in the eight C's uh, document, whether that's a, an e-book or, or uh, you know, how, whatever that turns into, um, you know, make sure to, uh, to map that all out. Well, we're, we're coming to a close, Chris, here. I am so glad you were able to make it today, uh, and I uh, look forward to hearing your feedback when you listen to the shows on Tuesday. Thanks, and thank you. Such a treat. All right, hon. Well, you have a great weekend, and I will talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. For more information about Solutions Live, please see www.solutionslive.blogspot.com. That's Solutions with a Z. I trust that today's show provided some information and some inspiration. Go out and begin to leave your legacy today. Oh,